every week at Sojourn, we go to the scriptures because it is there that the person and work of Christ are most clearly revealed for us. Preaching today on our fifth value, compassion, is Reed Squires, who's pastor at Sojourn Montrose. We're glad to have you, Reed. I think this is your first time preaching for Sojourn Heights ever. We're so glad to have Reed Squires come in and preach for us from Sojourn Montrose. Our sermon this week will be from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. But first, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, and we are thankful for this man of God who will preach from your word for us this morning. I pray that you would illuminate what is true in our hearts, that you would remove what is untrue from our hearts as we come into an encounter with your word preached for us. Please fill us with your spirit, empower us to listen and to receive your word for our good, for the good of our neighbors, and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And now hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. It says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There it is. Uh, good morning, peace be with you. Uh, we got that out of the way early. Uh, my name is Reed. I am the lead pastor of Sojourn Montrose. I've been in that position for almost four years now. Um, and this, as Paul said, is my first time teaching at Sojourn Heights, but um, I was first a almost member of Sojourn Heights in 2013. I moved to Houston in June um, of 2013, and I visited Heights uh, one Sunday, and I, I didn't know anybody in Houston. I didn't know anybody. I'm from North Carolina. I didn't, I didn't know a soul in the city. Um, and I liked the preaching. It wasn't great. Uh, I liked the music. It wasn't great. Um, I liked the name and the logo and the theology. That, all of that was good. Um, but I stayed at Sojourn because I was invited into a missional community. We call them parishes, but I was invited into a community on mission because the first Sunday I was there, I got invited to be part of a church plant in Montrose. And so I like to say that I love everything about Sojourn, or at least I like it, but I love the mission and I stay for the mission. Um, I also met my wife here that first Sunday, so I stayed for her as well. Um, but I think when Sojourn Montrose planted, it really started something new for us and for you guys, Sojourn Heights. It started not just one church, but a family of churches or a church of many congregations, as we say now, because right when we planted, Sojourn Houston was born. And this past Sunday, one week ago, um, Sojourn Montrose baptized two PhD students at Rice, one who is from the UK, uh, who's a self-described atheist, the other was a Muslim up until his conversion from Turkey. We couldn't even live stream it because his parents might be um, targeted because of his conversion. And I say that to tell you this. Eight years ago, we would say often, 
reach Houston, reach the world. And that was part of the mission of planting and sending and uh, starting new parishes and multiplying and making disciples. And that is actually happening. Um, the fruit that you guys faithfully sowed eight years ago in the little neighborhood of Montrose is returning uh, fruit. The seed that you sowed is returning fruit. So I just want you all to know that and think about that as we think about our life together this morning. Um, so you should also know that every Sojourn Houston congregation uh, today is wrapping up an annual sermon series called Life Together. Um, and we do this every year because we want to press into our life together as a church of many congregations in the city of Houston. So what do we mean, what do we all mean when we say multi-congregational church? When short, um, Sojourn Houston is one church made up of multiple congregations. Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, Sojourn Galleria, Sojourn Spring Branch, and Sojourn Oak Forest. And we have put our hands in the middle to pursue visible and meaningful unity because we're not satisfied with merely affiliating with one another. We think that the church should be spiritually and visibly united. We also pursue unity because we believe that church planning is essential to the Great Commission. It's how the Spirit establishes a lasting kingdom presence in a place, and in our context, that's in Houston. So this morning, we look at one of our five values, the value of compassion, but I think for the last two weeks, you've looked at a couple more, um, saturation, simplicity, local ministry, and family. So we wrap all that up this morning, and we'll see kind of how they uh, are knit together. But let, let me pray for our time, um, and then we'll look at God's compassion together. Holy Spirit, I invite you right now to still our minds, to calm us, to calm myself, to awaken us to your presence. Whatever... Um, anxieties we might have brought in with us this morning, whatever fears about the week, would they fade away like fog rolling away? And would we clearly see your word? Would it renew us? Would it be like drinking water in the desert? Would we hear your word spoken? Would we feel your presence by your spirit? Would we remember what you've done, Jesus, on our behalf? Would we feel the freedom that comes with salvation to be called into a mission like compassion? Would we feel that flow out of your word this morning and would we be um, captivated by the gospel once again? Maybe for the first time or the second time or the hundredth time, or the thousandth time, would we leave captivated by your gospel? Would that be true for me? Lord, we love you and we trust you, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. So, Paul read for us this, this small picture of Jesus' life and ministry, and very clearly this is a beautiful picture of compassion, and we will spend time analyzing the scene, but I don't want to begin there, because I don't think Jesus displaying compassion is actually that controversial. Here's what I mean. 
If you ask any given stranger or, or certainly an unbelieving friend whether they believe that Jesus was a real person or they don't believe He was a real person, they would probably agree that He's a compassionate figure in either history or fiction. And for clarity, we believe Jesus is real. Uh, that's a, a critical belief for the Christian. Uh, but I want to make the case early that Jesus is compassionate because He's linked to the God of the Old Testament. They're the same. I'm taking some liberty here because, as you probably are aware, if you've been at Sojourn Heights for a little while, usually at Sojourn, we walk through books of the Bible and we spend a lot of time unpacking the text. Um, but I was given not a text, but a word, compassion. Uh, so I'm going to take the liberty to kind of give you a systematic look of compassion throughout um, the Bible, primarily the Old Testament. So let me take some time to show you how God's compassion manifests in the history of His people and how we are called in His likeness to exhibit that same compassion. And this is where I think we lose our unbelieving friends, right? When we link Jesus to the God of the Old Testament, that's where we might lose some of our unbelieving friends. Joni Mitchell uh, puts it this way about God. She says, the God of the Old Testament is the depiction of evil. Or Dawkins, if you prefer a famous atheist, uh, says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. This should be offensive to you because we believe that the God of the Bible is the same throughout history. So we have work to do, and the work isn't to throw out your Joni Mitchell CDs. You can keep them. Um... What I mean is the work we have to do is that we believe that the triune God of the Old Testament is the same God in the incarnation of Jesus and the same God that we've worshipped this morning. We believe they are of the same essence and they have the same nature and they have the same character, that this is our God. And all throughout the Bible, two primary characteristics of God are on full display, His justice and His mercy or His compassion. So let's look uh, at a few very brief pictures of God's compassion in the history of redemption. And we could start in the beginning. Um, in the garden, Adam and Eve are given a task. They are given, uh, they are told to have dominion over creation and to subdue the earth in their dominion. So to labor over the earth. And they're told to be fruitful and multiply, to have children. God gives them these two tasks, and he also gives them something not to do, which is the famous, uh, the famous prohibition of the garden, which is not to eat from the fruit of one tree. And as you may know, Adam and Eve trust the words of a snake more than they trust the words of God, and they disobey God and eat from that tree anyway. Right, like God says in Genesis 2 verse 17, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And then the serpent slithers along and says, if you eat of that tree, you will surely not die. Adding one crucial word to the prohibition, that they will not die. And so what did God say Adam and Eve deserve because they ate of the tree? Death. So God being just here would be simply to strike them down where they stand. That would be a just response to disobedience. But instead, God shows compassion in what he curses. First, he looks at the snake. 
Instead, cursed, and says, cursed are you above all livestock, right? He curses the snake to crawl on the ground and eat dust. And then he turns to the man and the woman, and he does not curse them specifically. He curses their tasks. Remember their tasks um, to have dominion over the earth and to multiply. Well, now God tells man, you still have dominion but it will come by the sweat of your brow and the thorns and thistles will fight you every step of the way. And he turns to woman and says, you still will multiply, but there will be great pain in the multiplication. And yet, even in the midst of these curses, he promises what we call the greatest and earliest promise of the gospel, that the seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head. That's Genesis 3, uh, verse 15 And the he there is different than just a a random son in the future. It's a royal he. He, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. We know that to be Jesus. So, compassion picture one, where justice demands death, compassion is given to humanity, death is delayed, and a promise is given. This is not the end of the story of humanity. God is telling them this as he's kneeling in compassion and slaying an animal to clothe Adam and Eve in their shame. Next, look at the flood. If you want to turn to Genesis um, chapter 6, you can. We'll be just reading verse 5. This is one of those moments in history, or at least in the Old Testament, that our unbelieving friends will make a case that for this lie that God lacks compassion, right? They're going to say, yeah, remember the God of the Old Testament who destroyed the whole earth because he was angry? But God lacking compassion is not what this story is about. That's not what we find actually in the text. So at this point in history, man has multiplied all across the face of the earth, and that multiplication of humanity has also come with the multiplication of sin. So at creation, God is creating Everything and everything he's saying, that is good, that is good, that is good. And now God looks at his creation in depth. He looks into the very mind of humanity, and what does he find? He says, it's bad. Let's read uh, chapter 6, verse 5. It says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. We can stop right there. Every intention was evil. The thoughts were only evil continually. A lot of my unbelieving friends care deeply about justice, which is one of the ways that they bear God's image. So we should honor their caring about justice. And yet, when they look at the Bible, they think that God lacks compassion, but they miss where he's executing perfect justice. What should be God's response to man when their thoughts are only evil all the time? It should be justice. But that's not how God responds. It says this in 6 verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Another word there is grace in the eyes of the Lord. One family is spared. Noah found favor, or the word grace there. Um, Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and we learn later that Noah is this righteous man who walks with the Lord, which just means that he knows who God is. But before that, it tells us that Noah was chosen by God because he found favor in him. So his chosenness 
is what precedes his righteousness, and we're told that God spares Noah and his family. And even then, after the flood, God exhibits more compassion by what? By promising never to flood the earth again. The flood is important because it gives us the full picture of the justice that depraved humans really deserve, and yet it reminds us that God has stayed his hand. That's what we should remember when we see a rainbow in the sky, that we deserve justice, and yet God has met us with compassion. Next, the story of Moses. Moses was chosen by God again. Moses was a reluctant leader in Israel. He, he did not want to be the leader of Israel, but he was chosen by God um, to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom. And really, God does all of this to just bring them up on a mountain to be with him. Um, and so when they're free, they go up onto Mount Sinai. And um, you could turn to Exodus 19, 3, 6, if you'd like, um, where God says this to Moses. Uh, chapter 19, verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, This you will tell my people. You yourselves saw what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to my people, Israel. So God says, remember, I, I brought judgment that was deserved on the Israelites or on the Egyptians for enslaving you. I delivered you from them. I redeemed you and I drew you to myself. And it's in this context that God says, you are my treasure possession and you are a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And God is saying here, I have redeemed you for this purpose, to be my people, to be holy and to be priestly. And what do holy priests do? They intercede for others. So God is saying, you will be a light to the nations. You will show the nations who I am, a redeemer. And it's in this context that he calls them priests, which means mediators. So he's inviting them to mediate between him and the world. It's in this context that God gives the law. So the argument you might have heard is that the God of the Old Testament gives all these confusing, impossible to follow rules for the people. And then when they can't follow them, they die. But that's not what is happening Obedience to the law is not given as a condition for their redemption in Egypt. Obedience is only given for them to live into who they are, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, right? So we have to understand that the law was not for them to earn God's redemption. It already happened. And in fact, if the law was to, for them to earn their redemption, why is a third of the law about um, Forgiveness of sins. A third of the law is about how to repent for our sin in front of a holy God. So this is going to be a foundational understanding for us to understand our call as believers, right? That we have been saved to do good, not that in doing good we will be saved. This is true at Sinai, and it's true for us. 
Lastly, let's look at the promise in Jeremiah 31, uh, really 32. You can go ahead and start turning there. Um, The prophet is announcing a new covenant. A new promise between God and His people is being announced. Why do they need a new covenant? Well, because they break the old covenant, right? Two days after the Israelites hear the law given by God through Moses, the Ten Commandments, they do what? They fashion a calf and they worship it. So, God sends them into exile, and uh, this is a thousand years after that event at Mount Sinai, but a thousand years later, the people of Israel find themselves in exile. And Jeremiah is writing and saying, your exile is because God is just. He's saying your exile is because of God's justice. Yet in God's compassion, Jeremiah is also saying there is this time that he will make a new covenant with you. The promise is that God will write the law on the people's hearts that they will be his and he will be theirs and all his people will know him and he will, what, forgive their sins. Look at uh, Jeremiah 32, um, starting in verse 40. If you'd like to read along, it says this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts and they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This is God's response to a continually disobedient people. It's compassion. It's a stayed hand. It's a promise for redemption. Look, all we've looked at are just a few small moments in the redemptive history of the people of God. However, It's important for us when we're thinking about how do we engage our culture missionally to build a case that God's character in the Old Testament, who God is, is linked and continuous with Jesus. With that context, with this promise being made to God's people, God comes to earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and with his coming, he puts on flesh and he begins an earthly ministry that's bathed largely in compassion. He practices compassion towards those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are disadvantaged, those who are oppressed, those who are tired, those who are foreigners in the land. Jesus certainly speaks truth. He primarily speaks truth to this religious group called the Pharisees. But even with the Pharisees, we need to see that Jesus is compassionate. He takes time to explain his kingdom to them, even when they don't believe him, even when they seek to kill him. And here we're given this beautiful picture of compassion in Matthew 9. Now, in the verses right before the ones that we read this morning, Jesus heals a man who had a demon possession. And now, Jesus is traveling and speaking about the kingdom that he's bringing. Let me read it for us again, Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he turns to his disciples and says this, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So who comes to hear Jesus? Well, the harassed and the helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The literal word there is the mangled and thrown down. 
We know the, the text is clear. Jesus is doing physical healing here. He's healing physical ailments and sicknesses, but he's also teaching and proclaiming the kingdom. And so, for Jesus, in, this, in these small verses, compassion manifests itself both in word, in gospel truth proclaimed, and indeed in healing uh, and healing of affliction. So why are they harassed and helpless? Well, I think there's two levels to this harassment and this helplessness. They're harassed because they are really oppressed. These are, it says he's teaching in synagogues, so these are the Israelites in an oppressive regime in Rome. They're being oppressed. They're poor. They have no one to help them, no one to advocate for them. They have no leader. So in a real physical sense, they need real physical help, and Jesus actually meets their physical needs. He does not deny them physical help. The second level, though, is a spiritual sense. They're helpless because of their sin. The sin of the fall has led to disease and to death and affliction and oppression and addiction and death because of the way that the people are plagued with sin. And really, we're in good company with them because all of us know that we are helpless to sin on our own. So they and we need a pro proclamation of gospel truth, but in a very real sense, the kingdom that is established by the gospel is a kingdom where the poor and the marginalized, the immigrants, the sick, and the afflicted are met with compassion. They're helped. Their physical needs are actually met, and their spiritual needs are met, often in that order. Jesus calls them sheep without a shepherd. He's saying, these are who I came to save. I will be their shepherd. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 4, which says, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and he shall be their peace. And then Jesus, so Jesus is already starting to fulfill this shepherd prophecy, but then he turns to his disciples and he gives a parable, which is this, the harvest is plenty and the laborers are few. In the very next verses, Jesus will call the 12 disciples, and he gives them what? He gives them authority to practice physical compassion and spiritual compassion, to do good works, to cast out demons and heal affliction, and to preach the gospel. Those who are called and saved by Christ are given authority, likewise, in the Holy Spirit to do what? To practice compassion, to meet the physical needs of those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the truth of the gospel. How does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus do this? How does this all connect? Well, all the way back in Genesis, God had been promising to destroy Satan, to crush the serpent's head, and therefore undo the fall by destroying sin, to uphold justice and practice mercy at the same time in order to make a people for himself, a people would be, who would be holy and priestly mediators to the nations. It happens when God comes on earth in flesh, born of the woman, walking in full obedience where Adam failed to follow one rule, suffering on a cross in our place, taking the full just wrath of God that is deserved wrath but not deserved by Christ. The cross is perfect justice that we deserve placed on God himself for our redemption. 
And Christ rises again in victory, right? He sends his Holy Spirit to apply the law on our very hearts, the law of love and compassion and truth and proclamation. And now, Christ rules on a king, as a king on a throne over a kingdom of compassion. How is it a kingdom of compassion? Well, think back to Exodus. God promised Moses that his people would be a holy nation and a priesthood. And Peter, in, second, or in 1 Peter chapter 2, takes that same language and applies it to us, the church, saying that we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a kingdom of mediators. And so we mediate God's truth and his love by displaying compassion, physical compassion and spiritual compassion. Compassion is a value at Sojourn Houston, and that just means as a church family, as a, as a church in Houston, we display God's image by valuing and practicing compassion, by displaying compassion done by what we believe and say and what we do. That means as a congregation, Sojourn Heights, you live into citizenship in the kingdom of God by practicing compassion to your neighbors. And I'm talking about a lot more compassion than giving change to a homeless man on the corner, but I'm not talking about less than that either. I know people want practicals when it comes to practicing compassion, but I don't have practicals for you other than what Jesus says, which is pray earnestly. If we, if we as a people really want to value compassion and we don't feel like we value compassion, then you should seriously pray. You should seriously pray for the Lord to move you in compassion because we can't do compassion. We have to embody compassion the way God has called us to embody compassion. Two weeks ago, um, we preached Galatians. I think you guys preached Galatians, a famous passage where... Uh, it says, uh, Paul says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And this kind of came out in our parish gathering that week, but we just kind of asked the question, do we feel like that? Like, do I feel like, do I feel like the spirit within me is crying, Abba, Father? Do I feel like the spirit inside me is crying that I am a child of the living and reigning God. And as a child of the living and reigning God, I will practice the compassion of my good father by proclaiming truth and helping those who are marginalized and oppressed. Do I feel like that's the spirit crying within me? I think we need to pray that that would become more true for us. I know I do. I'm saying I, I do need to pray, not that I do feel that way. We've been called to be laborers. We've been told that the harvest is plenty. The harvest is abundant. That just means there are ample opportunities in our world, in our city, in our neighborhood, on your block. There are ample opportunities to display God's compassion. And only when we're living in accordance with the Spirit will we realize those opportunities. This is where our five values kind of come full circle, right? Um, valuing family means that we value displaying compassion to one another as brothers and sisters in the church. That just includes forgiveness, inclusion, generosity, gratitude, patience, 
joy with one another. Valuing local ministry just means we value proximity and longevity in a neighborhood for the sake of what? Displaying God's compassion. Valuing saturation means we want the city to be soaked in the gospel and therefore dripping with compassion from neighbor to neighbor, block to block, neighborhood to neighborhood, and hopefully city to city. And valuing simplicity just means that we value simple lives with enough margin to display compassion to those who suffer, that we would have enough margin to first notice suffering and second, seek out suffering so we can serve those who are in need. And Sojourn Heights, as you run after compassion as a congregation, the beauty of our life together as Sojourn Houston just means that you can point to brothers and sisters in Montrose and in Oak Forest and the Galleria and Spring Branch who are running after compassion as well in their context. We have promised that we will do this with you. And it's a joy to do it with you. We will do it in the Third Ward and in Southwest Houston as we strive to plant new sojourn congregations in those places that will practice compassion. There's a tangible need here in the Heights that you, brothers and sisters, have been charged to meet. And because we link arms as a church family in multiple neighborhoods, we can strategically take our time in our places where God has put us to push back the darkness and bring the kingdom of compassion to bear on Houston, one person at a time, one block at a time, one neighborhood at a time, and eventually the whole city. This is our vision, and it's not ours, it's God's. Sojourn Heights, we love our life together, and it's time for your congregation and my congregation to live into our life together more and more and more and to awaken to our unity and to awaken to our mission together. Ephesians, this passage is largely talking about the unbeliever, but I think it's applicable to us. It says, awake, O sleeper. But Christians, we know, can be asleep. I know I have found myself asleep many a season in my life. Ephesians says, awake, O sleeper. If you feel like you've been asleep to God's proclamation of truth and his deeds, his good deeds done to those who are oppressed and marginalized, this is your alarm clock. Don't press snooze. (laughs) Awake, O sleeper. Proclaim salvation in Christ. Proclaim fatherhood of a God who is a good father. Proclaim that to the sufferer and the oppressed there is good news. We will take care of you in this church. We will help pay bills. We will help find housing. We will help with transportation. We will help help you become a citizen. And also, we will introduce you to a kingdom-changing mindset, a life-changing kingdom, rather, that you can be part of a family that is eternal, as we sang that we may die in our bodies, but we will never stop living because we will dwell in union with Christ our King for eternity. Those two things aren't in conflict with each other, meeting needs and proclaiming the truth. We can do it if we pray to be awakened to this. We love you, Sojourn Heights. That's from all of us at Sojourn Montrose, but everyone in Sojourn Houston, we love you. We're grateful to labor with you 
The harvest is there. It's abundant. We've been called to live into our freedom in Christ who has saved us through his life, through his death and his resurrection and who has sent us His Spirit that cries out within us, Abba, Father. And it's from that posture, only there are we called to labor. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, we invite You to awaken us to the call of the kingdom to the posture of the holy priest, the royal nation, we invite you now to awaken us to the glorious riches of proclaiming compassion in word and in deed. Send within us again this morning the Spirit crying, Abba, Father, with the fatherhood of God settle deeply into our hearts as we find ourselves as children as little clumsy toddlers, would we look up at our Father and be met with a gaze of compassion? The blessing in Numbers says that your light, may your face shine upon you. Lord, would your face shine upon us would we believe that when you look at us, you beam with pride, beam with love? And would our radical acceptance as children from within whom the Spirit is crying, Abba, Father, would that radical acceptance propel us into the mission of doing good and proclaiming truth, not to earn, but because we've earned in your life, death, and resurrection, because we've earned it all through you, would we so liberally, will we proclaim the truth liberally? Awaken me, Lord. I need to be woken up to this. Lord, I repent for being blind to the compassion that should be displayed through your image. I repent for taking the beauty of the gospel and being stingy with it. I repent for your abundant resources hitting my wallet and being, uh, believing for a second that I earned it. And Lord, I repent knowing that it's met with abundant forgiveness. Every day, every hour, Lord, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you, great comforter. Awaken us. Bless Sojourn Houston's unity. May it be a light for our city. And we count all that we have you're doing. Lord, we love you and trust you to do the work that you have said you will do. And we invite you to do it anew within us uh, this day. We pray all of this in your precious name. Amen.